So today's podcast is going to be on fetal physiology and transition to extrauterine life. So this is going to have two components. The first component is fetal physiology. What is fetal physiology made up of? And then when we're happy with the concept of fetal physiology, we will talk about what happens when this warm, um, cosy fetus adapts to the cold, relatively cold, um, outside world. It's disconnected from its main source of nutrients, the placenta, and what changes happen to adapt. So this transition is a very, very important part of understanding neonatal physiology. So what we're going to talk about is important. So the physiology of the fetus is very, very different from the neonate. Okay. The transition from being a fetus to being a neonate and transitioning from intra to extra uterine life requires quite rapid changes quite complex changes and quite well orchestrated changes if the neonate is to survive. We know all of these things are crucial in underpinning our understanding of these changes. So the first bit of fetal physiology that I'm going to talk about is cardiac development. The old age question, when does the heart first beat? Around day 21, day 22, the first heart beat occurs at around about that stage. Gas exchange is initially provided by the yolk sac and the placenta until you get placental dominance at 10 weeks. So at 10 weeks, rather than being a combined effort of the yolk sac and the placenta, the placenta becomes the dominant force for gas exchange in the fetus. Maternal blood is oxygen rich, okay? And this oxygen rich maternal blood mixes with poorly oxygenated blood within the placental space. The oxygen content of blood provided to the fetus is of a lower oxygen content than that of the maternal uterine blood. So the fetus lives in a relatively hypoxemic environment. So the first thing to say is because there is a mixing between these two, the blood that is received by the fetus is of a lower oxygen content than that of the maternal blood. So as the fetal lungs do not contribute to oxygenation in utero, there are several shunts to direct blood away from the fetal lungs. Why have blood going to the fetal lungs when they don't contribute to oxygenation as they do in adults and in the neonate? So, 
Our initial knowledge about the human circulation was actually obtained from sheep. Okay. So what we're going to talk about is a few of the important things. So what do we know about the fetal circulation? Well, okay. The blood in the umbilical vein has an oxygen saturation of between 70 to 80 percent. And it's got the highest oxygen saturation in the fetal circulation. Why? Because the umbilical vein is the vessel that connects from the placenta to the fetus. So it's going to have the highest oxygen saturation before we get oxygen extraction in the fetus. Okay. As the umbilical vein enters the fetus, it splits at the level of the liver. Some blood perfusing the hepatic circulation and most of it entering the ductus venosus. Okay. We're going to talk about the ductus venosus in a second. The direction of flow of the blood helps to maximise oxygen delivery to the brain and the heart. Remember, I'm not saying limbs, brain and the heart, vital organs. Although blood from the ductus venosus and the inferior vena cava merges near the fetal heart, blood from each vessel is directed separately within the heart. Crucial point coming up. Poorly oxygenated blood from the inferior vena cava enters the right atrium, merges with the poorly oxygenated blood from the superior vena cava and is preferentially directed into the right ventricle. So the foramen ovale that can help shunt crucially oxygen rich blood from the right atrium to the left atrium in the cases of oxygen deficient blood from the inferior vena cava and superior vena cava, this is preferentially shunted not into the left atrium, but into the right ventricle. A small portion of the right ventricular total cardiac output goes to the lungs, whereas the remainder of it is shunted across the ductus arteriosus to the descending aorta. The blood flow in the descending aorta has an oxygen saturation of about 60% and this perfuses your abdominal organs and it perfuses your lower body before returning to the placenta. So we've already got an idea about the fetal circulation and I will summarise this multiple times. So better oxygenated blood from the ductus venosus is preferentially directed from the right atrium across the foramen ovale to the left atrium. This right to left shunt, so blood being shunted from right atrium to left atrium, right to left shunt, accounts for approximately 25% of your total cardiac output. This blood that's being shunted mixes with a small amount of blood from the pulmonary veins and then enters the ascending aorta to supply the carotid and coronary arteries. As most of this blood originated from the better ductal venosus blood, which is where it's come from, the brain and heart receive blood with an oxygen saturation of 65% compared to the post-ductal that perfuses lower limbs and abdominal organs of 60%. So we know that the better oxygen rich blood gets pumped up to the brain, 
to perfuse the coronary arteries to supply the heart is of a higher oxygen saturation. So there is a unique fetal circulation that I will then go through again in a second to really drive home the point. So in addition to this unique cardiac circulation, the cardiac function is different as well. So if we're talking about anatomy, we'll now talk slightly a little bit more about physiology. So the ionotropic ability of the fetal and neonatal heart is different. Ionotropic force of contraction, force of contraction. The contractility of the immature heart is decreased because we have low amount of myofibrils. Myofibrils are really important for contractility. And because of this decreased amount, we don't tend, in most cases, the fetal heart tends to respond by beating faster rather than increasing stroke volume because of the lower myofibril count. And there's an immaturity of your calcium regulatory mechanism that therefore makes the fetal heart very intolerant of low calcium levels and important intracellular iron um, for myocardial contractility. The fetus has a limited ability to adjust cardiac output. In utero, the heart functions at the peak of the frank starling curve, okay? So increases in preload have a minimal impact on cardiac output. Fetal cardiac output is primarily altered by increases in heart rate. So fetal tachycardia increases cardiac output and fetal bradycardia leads to decreased cardiac output. So this mechanism isn't ideal because sympathetic regulation of cardiac function is reduced in a fetus. There's less beta adrenoreceptors to act on with the sympathetic drive and decreased sympathetic innovation. So if I then recap what we've talked about, and I'm going to talk about a few things. So during pregnancy, the fetal circulation works differently. Number one, the fetus is connected by the umbilical cord to the placenta, okay? Number two, through the blood vessels in the umbilical cord, the fetus gets all its nutrients and oxygen, okay? It's the life support mechanism of the fetus is the placenta. Number three, waste products and carbon dioxide from the fetus are sent back through the umbilical cord and placenta to the mother's circulation to be removed. Okay, three very crucial points. So the fetal circulation uses three shunts and I'm gonna name those three shunts. So if any neonatal consultant or in any exam question, you're struggling to remember the three key neonatal shunts, they are the following. Your patent foramen ovale that shunts blood from your right atrium to your left atrium. More correctly, as we've said, oxygen-rich blood is shunted from right atrium to left atrium. Oxygen-poor blood from the superior inferior vena cava gets shunted preferentially to the right ventricle. Oxygen-rich blood gets shunted from right atrium to left atrium. 
You then got your ductus arteriosus that shunts blood away from the lungs and there's a shunt connecting the pulmonary artery with the aorta. So foramen ovale shunts oxygen rich blood from the right atrium to the left atrium. Otherwise, if this didn't happen, you'd be pumping oxygen rich blood to the lungs. That doesn't make any sense. You need to pump it to the systemic circulation instead. The second thing we talked about is the ductus arteriosus that shunts blood from the pulmonary artery to the aorta. And then the third thing is the ductus venosus. The ductus venosus is the third shunt we're going to talk about. And this is a shunt that allows oxygen rich blood in the umbilical vein, which is the vessel that leads from the placenta to the fetus to bypass the liver and is essential for a normal fetal circulation. So I'm going to talk about them now. Shunts, the three that we've talked about are really important. They are small passages that allow blood to become directed that needs to be oxygenated. The purpose of these shunts is to bypass the lung and bypass the liver. These organs will not work fully until after birth. The shunt that bypasses the lungs um, is one of the shunts that bypasses the lungs is called the foramen ovale. This shunts blood from the right atrium to the left atrium. The ductus arteriosus is the other shunt that bypasses the lungs and it shunts blood from the pulmonary artery to the aorta. So both of those shunts shunt blood away from the lungs but through different ways. Foramen ovale shunts blood away from the right atrium where the normal pathway would be right atrium, right ventricle, lungs, to pulmonary artery lungs, instead shunting from the right atrium to the left atrium, so it goes left atrium, left ventricle, aorta. So you're shunting oxygen rich blood away from the right sided circulation to the left to be pumped to the systemic circulation. The second one is the ductus arteriosus, so the ductus arteriosus shunts blood away from the pulmonary artery. Obviously, the pulmonary artery goes towards the lungs, supplies, you know, lungs. We don't want blood going to the non-functional amniotic fluid-filled lungs. We want it instead to go to the aorta, so it shunts blood away from the pulmonary artery to the aorta. So oxygen and nutrients from the mum's blood are sent across the placenta to the fetus. This oxygen-rich, full of nutrient blood flows through the umbilical cord to the liver, okay? And this splits into a few different ways. So, splits into three branches. The blood then reaches the inferior vena cava. Most of this blood is then sent through the ductus venosus. This is a shunt that allows highly oxygen-rich blood to bypass the liver and it shunts it to the inferior vena cava and to the right atrium of the heart. And this is when your foramen ovale kicks in. Oxygen-rich blood entering the right atrium gets shunted by the foramen ovale from the right atrium to the left atrium. A small amount of blood will have to go to the liver to give it the nutrients it needs for development. So, I'm going to talk you through it. So let's imagine I have got a oxygen rich blood okay we can talk about oxygen deficient or whatever you want what you can think about is you can think about a 
red blood cell. So we're going to think about a red blood cell. So we've got a red blood cell in the right atrium, okay? Or a collection of red blood cells, maybe a party of red blood cells. If we've got blood entering the right atrium, it depends where it's come from as to what happens next. This is the crucial bit, and that's why we're starting from this point. If it's oxygen deficient blood from the inferior and superior vena cava, this blood will get shunted, okay? Shunted is probably the wrong term. It will not get shunted from the right atrium to left atrium. It will preferentially flow in, in through the tricuspid valve to the right ventricle and therefore get pumped away, yeah? So preferentially, oxygen-poor blood gets diverted so if we think superior vena cava blood, shunted, diverted, tricuspid valve, right ventricle, okay? Away from the left side of the heart. If we talk about oxygen-rich blood, oxygen-rich blood, or a collection, a party of red cells, right atrium gets diverted, shunted, shunted using the proper term of the word, right atrium to left ventricle, right atrium to left atrium, left atrium to left ventricle, sorry. Blood is now in the left ventricle, so this is oxygen-rich blood. This oxygen-rich blood goes from the left ventricle into the aorta. From the aorta, we give blood to the heart muscle itself, to the brain, and to the arms, okay, upper limbs. After we've got this circulating phenomenon, the blood returns... So it goes there. The blood returns to the right atrium of the heart through the superior vena cava. Crucial point, the oxygen has been used up by these tissues. So the oxygen leaving the aorta to go to the heart muscle, the brain and the arms is oxygen rich. Circulation happens, the oxygen goes into those tissues and the blood returning to the right atrium through the superior vena cava is a lot less oxygenated than the blood that left the aorta. So what happens? Well, we've talked about this. So give yourself a pat on the back if you're following me so far. Because it's oxygen deficient blood, this blood returning through the superior vena cava to the right atrium, rather than being shunted from right atrium to left atrium, this shunting doesn't happen because it's oxygen deficient. So this blood goes into the right ventricle, okay? This blood that is low in oxygen is pumped from the right ventricle into the pulmonary artery. A small amount of blood goes to the lungs. Most of this blood is shunted through the ductus arteriosus to the descending aorta. What does the descending aorta supply is the question. This blood enters the umbilical arteries and flows into the placenta. In the placenta, carbon dioxide and waste products are released into the mother's circulatory system. Oxygen and nutrients from the mother's blood are released into the fetal blood. So I really hope that you followed what I've talked about. So fetal physiology, there are three key shunts. Ductus arteriosus, foramen ovale, 
okay? And ductus venosus. Okay. They are the three that we need to talk about. So we have talked then about the fetal circulation and I will give you some diagrams, but if you can trace the path of deoxygenated blood or low oxygen blood, you're doing very well in understanding crucially what the fetal circulation is. So if we talk about lung development, so lung development is two phases, growth followed by maturation. So in the respiratory physiology podcast, I delve into this in more detail, but the lung bud is actually a septation and forms from the foregut in the first trimester. The buds subdivide and form bronchopulmonary segments. The gas exchanging bits are formed during the canalicular phase that happens in the second trimester. Alveolar duct development starts at 24 weeks and septation at 36 weeks. During both phases of development, these epithelial cells secrete a chloride-rich fluid into the bronchial tree. This results in accumulation of fluid within the fetal airways. Compared to postnatal lungs, fetal lungs are hyperexpanded. The fluid distension increases your pulmonary vascular resistance, okay? And the presence of fluid is critical for stimulating lung development. And maybe you could think of some conditions where uh, pulmonary hypoplasia is associated with. So fetal lung fluid is important. Prior to birth, the component of fetal lung fluid changes because we have surfactant produced by type 2 pneumocytes in response to increased cortisol levels. These decrease the surface tension. If you decrease your surface tension, you allow inflation at lower pressures. So theoretically, um, with surfactant, you are less prone to barotrauma because you don't need as much pressure to open up your lungs. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about. So that's what we, that's essentially the main things that we talked about so far. Okay. So that is what we've talked about so far. And what we're going to do is we're then going to talk about a few other systems and then we'll talk about transition. So endocrine development. Cortisol production increases from 30 to 36 weeks and we get a second peak. Cortisol is so important because it leads to activation of thyroid hormone. It leads to maturation of hepato, hepatic glucose metabolism and improved maintenance of euglycemia after delivery. Cortisol levels are lower in the setting of preterm delivery or C-section. Hematology development, weeks two to three, the yolk sac is the primary driver for red cell production. From five weeks to six months, the liver takes over this role, followed by the bone marrow. Relative hypoxemia induces HIF1, which is hypoxia-inducible factor one. This is the key thing that stimulates the fetal kidneys to produce EPO or erythropoietin, 
This drives red cell production and increases the oxygen carrying capacity. Okay. Remember that there is a high proportion of fetal hemoglobin, okay, which is kind of um, has high oxygen affinity but disassociates poorly. And we know that fetal acidosis changes delivery of oxygen to tissues by decreasing the affinity of fetal hemoglobin for oxygen. So as much as we say fetal hemoglobin has a high affinity for oxygen, acidosis can affect fetal hemoglobin's ability to dissociate. So it decreases the affinity and increases oxygen delivery to peripheral tissues. Transition's complex, and it's made even more complex by, in many cases, people not understanding fetal physiology. If you don't understand fetal physiology, keep on reading through and listening to the podcast with the aid of the PowerPoint presentation that should be uploaded today. Keep on going through it, persevere with it, because at one point it will click. So what happens with transition? So with your first postnatal breath, your pulmonary vascular resistance decreases, the fluid goes out and your air, your lungs become air filled. When you clamp the umbilical cord, the low resistance system, so the placenta is the lowest resistance organ in the fetal circulation, we remove that. So what happens to you, your systemic vascular resistance is the question. It increases, obviously. So if your placenta is a low resistance system and you remove that, your systemic vascular resistance goes up, your pulmonary vascular resistance drops because the lungs ventilate and they become filled with air and not fluid. So what does that do? Well, very importantly, the pressure within your left atrium increases. And why would that happen? Because your systemic vascular resistance has gone up, your pulmonary vascular resistance has gone down. Okay, so the pressure within your aorta goes up. So the pressure within your left atrium goes up. Okay, and there is more blood returning to the left atrium from the lungs. The left atrial pressure becomes higher than the right atrial pressure and the flap across the foramen ovale closes. Shunt number one has closed, at least in most cases. And this was an SBA question and someone has got a cryptogenic stroke. So someone has got a, um, for example, some people talk about someone that's got a DVT and has a stroke rather than a pulmonary embolism. Cryptogenic stroke could be a sign of a patent foramen ovale. Most um, infants have reversal of flow across the ductus with a left to right flow occurring within 10 minutes, um, resulting in greater pulmonary flow. So during this transition, the systemic vascular resistance increases, pulmonary vascular resistance goes down. Okay. Increased oxygenation, because we said that the fetus is relatively hypoxemic, and decreased blood flow leads to closure of the fetal cardiac shunts. Okay? So clamping of the umbilical vein prior to the onset of ventilation 
removes the primary source of left-sided venous return, okay? Remember, left sinus venous return, ductus venosus empties into the right atrium, blood, oxygen-rich blood gets shunted from the right atrium to the left atrium through the foramen ovale, left ventricle, etc. So that's very important. We get significant pulmonary changes, okay, that happen at birth. So surfactant secretion into the fetal lungs is stimulated by labour. We get alveolar stretch that also increases surfactant. And these allow for a lower surface tension so you can inflate the lungs at a lower pressure. Clearance of fetal lung fluid begins before birth, is changed by labour and is mostly completed by two hours of age. So how do we clear this fluid? During spontaneous labour and immediately after birth, the respiratory epithelium changes crucially. So we go from being a fluid secretion epithelia, so with active chloride transport, to active fluid reabsorption, active sodium transport, active chloride transport secretion, active sodium transport absorption. So this sodium mediated absorption is believed to be initiated even before birth. Okay. So that's very, very important. If we effectively clear fetal lung fluid, we decrease pulmonary vascular resistance. Okay. And what we know is patients with transient tachypnea of the newborn or surfactant deficiency have decreased sodium reabsorption. So they are at increased risk of retaining this fluid and not clearing it. Okay. So as ventilation is initiated, you establish a functional residual capacity. So preterm infants have a lower functional residual capacity. PEEP improves your functional residual capacity. Functional residual capacity, define it. Volume of air present in your lungs at the end of passive expiration. Volume of air present in lungs at the end of a passive expiration. So that can go up, okay? Functional residual capacity can help with preventing airways collapsing. Other kind of key changes that we talked about, hematological changes, the production of fetal hemoglobin decreases after birth and you increase your production of the hemoglobin beta chain. So you normally get normal levels of adult hemoglobin by four to six months. Metabolic changes that will lead nicely and revise nicely our hypoglycemia discussion. Glucose and amino acids are actively transported to the fetus across the placenta. When we cut off the placental circulation and detach the fetus from the placenta, this process stops, which is important. Okay. So to maintain blood glucose after separation from the placental circulation, the newborn gets a catecholamine surge, glucagon levels go up and decreased insulin. 
gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis in the liver will ensure stable blood glucose until oral intake improves over the first few days. Ketone bodies and lactate will provide an additional energy source. As will pulmonary changes, cortisol levels going up is really important and that drives reabsorption of lung fluid. Okay, so that's all kind of our important things. Temperature regulation at birth, in infants emerge covered in liquid, resulting in potential heat loss via evaporation. So skin to skin, wrapped in a warm blanket, etc. Hypothermia can happen quite quickly. Okay. Um, brown adipose tissue lipolysis triggered by norepinephrine can generate heat. And peripheral vasoconstriction can minimise heat loss. So to summarise, we have had a discussion about the fetal circulation. We've had a look at the fetal physiology and we have looked at transition to extrauterine life. I would suggest to look at some of the very good images on the internet about the fetal circulation. If you can trace what happens to oxygen rich blood, you will be doing a very, very good job. And just to kind of go over the three shunts, we have got your ductus venosus, your ductus arteriosus and your foramen ovale. And I will put plenty of pictures up which should help with understanding these shunts. OK. Remember the function of the three shunts. OK. So that's what we're talking about. OK. So any questions about today, the PowerPoint should be up later on, but feel free to email me any problems or things that you'd like clarified. Thank you.